maybe DD will sort of be a test case for that. Um, but I don't think it bodes well for some of the international exchanges. And what about Tencent? That's also in focus after it was suspended from updating its existing apps or launching any new apps without government approval. Um, is this, do you think, specifically a problem for Tencent or was it more maybe a warning shot across the bowels of all app developers that these rules are now in place and they're going to be enforced? I, you know, I think it's a bit of both. I think in Tencent's case, they just they have their fingers in so many different pies that it, it makes sense that the government might be targeting them first for a little bit of extra regulatory scrutiny. Having said that, I do think we're going to run into a situation now going forward where any new apps that are expected to be targeting uh, a large population base here are going to be put under uh, increasing scrutiny before they launch. I think that's just the, the reality going forward here. Okay, Ben, it's always good to get your thoughts. Very interesting times. Thanks very much. That's Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, let's take a look at what's happening around the Asian markets right now. As expected, uh, there is a bit of a sell-off going on. The ASX 200 in Australia is down about a third of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 1%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea down half a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose about 140, 150 points at the open. In the commodities markets, we are seeing a rebound in oil. Uh, it's up about 4% at the moment now from the New York close. Brent crude oil trading at $74.53 a barrel. Gold is, though, slipping. That's trading at uh, $1,791 an ounce. I'll be back tomorrow morning with more updates on what's happening in global markets and the world of business. Do please tune in again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Jim Gordon and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast for today, dry during the day, maximum temperature of around 26 degrees, fine and dry in the next few days, becoming cool though tomorrow, and it's 20 degrees right now, 69% relative humidity. It's 8.32, Todd Harting has the half-hour news. The police have arrested a 33-year-old man and charged him with assault after he allegedly pushed a woman onto the light rail track in Tunmun. MTR staff later tracked him on CCTV. Julian Quayle has more. Chief Inspector Li Yingqi said that at about 4pm, the man pushed the woman from the platform of Taihing North Station onto the track, which was clear of trains at the time. Chief Inspector Li said the woman suffered abrasions to her arms and neck, and her husband reported the incident to the police after the suspect fled. The MTR Corporation said its staff spotted the suspect boarding a train at 7pm heading towards Tumlin Ferry Pier and informed the police, who detained him seven stations later. The police said initial investigation showed that the suspect and the pair do not know each other and they're looking into the suspect's mental health. Roundtable lawmaker Michael Teen says he expects quarantine-free travel between Hong Kong and the mainland to resume by the end of the year. But he warned that the newly identified Omicron variant could sideline the plan. The government's expected to announce a new health code system for Hong Kong residents this week. Mr Teen added he doesn't expect the system to involve a new mobile app. The health code app that they're going to reveal consists of two parts. One is the leave home safe. They will make it mandatory for all restaurants starting next week, but that's in our phone. So when you enter the mainland, you produce your phone to let them download your record, and then they will give you a entry health code app, which is only usable on the mainland, which everybody today has to get anyway. So really, there's nothing new. You're just taking whatever people are using today and they give it a new name. 
Mr Teen is running for the LegCo seat in New Territories northwest. Macau officials say police have arrested 11 people in connection with a money laundering and illegal gambling case. Natalie Ching has this report. Macau officials say those detained include a 74-year-old businessman, surnamed Chow, but they stopped short of revealing if the suspect was Elvin Chow, the head of junket operators on City Group. Investigators say they received tip-offs back in 2019 about a junket company operating an illegal gambling platform for mainland members and launched an official investigation in April last year. A mainland court on Friday issued a warrant for Elvin Chow, accusing him of leading a group to set up illegal casinos on the mainland. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. To start the week on Back Chat, we're talking about fake news and media self-regulation. The chief executive, Carrie Lam, has said the administration is studying ways to stop the spread of fake news and disinformation online, using overseas experience as a reference point. Speaking at the Forum on Network Media of China, she said officials had to supervise and manage the media in an appropriate fashion, as prevention is better than cure. Earlier, the chief secretary, John Lee, supported a self-regulatory model for the media. From 9.15, we're talking about elderly drivers after the Ombudsman uh, urged the Transport Department to tighten medical requirements for older drivers. You can let, let us know your thoughts on either of these issues. You can leave a message on our Facebook page Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us now on the line, we have uh, Mark Pinkston, former Government Chief Information Officer, Keith Richberg, President of the Foreign Correspondence Club and Director and Professor of Practice at the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at the University of Hong Kong, and also on the line, uh, Dr Bess Wang, who's a Senior Lecturer at the School of Communication and Film at Hong Kong Baptist University. Um, Mark Pinkston, good morning. If we can start with you, hello. Hello, yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, do we need a law against fake news? No, no. Uh, I don't think so. I think it would be very hard to regulate. Um, I think the trouble would be is the definition of fake news. Uh, for example, uh, if a reporter um, does not write a good story or if he makes a mistake in his story, would that be regarded as fake news? No, it would be just a simple mistake. So I, I think that uh, what John Lee has been saying, self-regulation, would be better than, than legislation. Yeah, because there's two different things here. There's disinformation and misinformation, isn't there? Uh, disinformation is a deliberate falsehood designed to uh, to achieve uh, to deceive uh, readers or listeners. Uh, misinformation could just be a reporter making a mistake. Uh, I mean, it, it, sh it shouldn't happen, but it does happen. But, uh, exactly. That's what um, the police commissioner Raymond Shu was talking about the other day. Uh, when uh, about uh, the killing of wild pigs, and um, he said that uh, people had politicised it, and the police were put did not put any pressure on AFCD as as had been reported. Uh, he said that was false news uh, to bring uh, 
disrespect onto the police. So that's very sort of slight of the difference. So, Mark, how do you tell, how do you distinguish then between journalism and news? Because as journalists, we were all hopefully trained with ethics and professional ethics to the fore. But a lot of what's online is not what we would call journalism in that it hasn't been uh, rigorously read by sub-editors and checked. It's just published without any kind of checks and balances. So how could the government distinguish between journalism and just citizen journalists who just publish online? Well, yeah, yeah, you're quite correct. They are different things. Um, you know, especially with the, the advent of, um, of um, the Internet, you know, we're getting far, far more false news now uh, than, than we had in, in the old days. But tabloid newspapers uh, still tend to sen sensationalise their headlines uh, to attract people to a nothing story. Uh, this sensationalisation uh, uh, could be regarded as being fake because it's, uh, it's, it's not true, just drawing attention to a story. But that's not new, Mark, is it? I mean, as a former oh, Sun no. reporter, I can tell you we've been doing that for decades. It doesn't exactly. mean, though, if it's good tabloid journalism, that the story isn't true. You just, you know, play it to the, to the highest advantage. Well, yes, and it could also be... If, it, if it, the story is not true, well, that's fake news. And you're right, it has been going on since Kingdom Come. I used to work, work on the Star newspaper in Hong Kong. And wow, <laughs> plenty of funny stories came out of there. But, and that was before the advent of uh, the internet. Yeah, and I mean, how do you define fake news? There was a, an, an interesting BBC interview with Billy Connolly the other day, and he recalled late night in Glasgow walking past a, a news vendor. Do you remember when the first editions used to be sold on the street? Late at night at, at pubs, chucking out time. And this old guy used to just stand there going, horror and terror, horror and terror. And, and people would buy the paper thinking they were going to read about horror and terror. And that was just the news vendor. That wasn't even the newspaper. Of course, there was no horror and terror. That's true, that's true. There used to be, in, 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 uh, when I was in the working press, uh, that fake, fake news used to be good copy for, uh, for a lot of people. So we had an adage during my journalistic cadetship in Australia, but don't let the facts spoil a good story. <laughs> you weren't working for Murdoch then. <laughs> okay. OK, just to clarify, just to clarify for the listeners, uh, uh, Anna used to work for the Sun newspaper in the UK. Which and, and the Times, and, and the Times. Both Murdoch newspapers. Right, right, right. You mentioned the Sun, which, of course, is a very successful tabloid uh, newspaper. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. I can tell you, if Rupert Murdoch caught you making up a story, you were an ex-journalist by lunchtime. Right, right, right. Yeah, good. OK, well, uh, also with us is uh, Keith Richburg. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Jim. How are you? So, uh, uh, very well, thanks. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so, I mean, we're looking at two different areas here, really. Uh, there, there's, there's traditional media and then there's the internet. Um, do, you, do you think uh, both can be uh, regulated or governed under the same set of rules, or uh, how does it need to be approached? Well, I think what Mark Pinkston said there was just absolutely right. You, you, you can't, uh, first of all, you can't regulate it through legislation. I don't think you need that. And... Uh, because one of the problems, as was just discussed, is you know, 
government uh, officials who have been talking about this have not defined what they mean by fake news. Uh, you know, a mistake in a newspaper uh, is generally corrected if it's pointed out. And uh, so, you know, news, news organizations, news outlets, they correct their own mistakes. So I think they are already self-regulating. And secondly, most of the major news organizations, you know, from AFP and CNN to, to SCFP, you name it, they already have their own uh, fact-checking uh, sections. And that's one of the biggest growth areas in the journalism right now. That's where we send students all the time, is to the fact-checking desks of news organizations. So when they see things that are out there on the Internet, uh, disinformation about the coronavirus or disinformation about uh, pretty much anything, uh, you'll see it being corrected by these uh, media-led fact-checking units. And in that sense, the media is already doing what the government is that they should be doing. But I think what they're talking about, and again, we don't know because they haven't defined their terms, uh, they're talking about sort of ordinary citizens who post things online that are, you know, deliberate disinformation or deliberately fabricated to to cause trouble for the government or, or you know, cause distrust to the government or its policies. So, so Keith, there's an important distinction here, isn't there? We're really not talking about journalism. We're talking about people publishing uncorroborated and uncontrolled information and disinformation online. Absolutely, and that is a big problem. But I really wish, uh, you know, that the chief secretary and the chief executive would stop quoting Donald Trump and calling that fake news. It's not. It has nothing to do with news. No. It's ordinary citizens just posting things on their Twitter accounts that might be something that's fabricated or fake. But news agencies are actually quite responsible about correcting their mistakes. Now, when you're, you, you teach journalism, I've taught journalism at university in China, and professional ethics is a major part of the curriculum. That's still absolutely. the case, I assume. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, just the other day, uh, there was a column in, in China Daily that made a you know, pretty bad mistake about you know, mentioning that the FCC had done something when the FCC had not done that thing. But we, we sent them a message and they corrected it right away. <laughs> That's what legitimate news organizations do. So I'm not sure why you know, the, the government officials keep going around talking about media organizations and fake news when I think media organizations are pretty responsible about correcting things. Now, the, the, the reason that, this, that media organizations like, you know, like the FCC, HKJ, and others have said this is a worry is because what we're concerned about is because they keep talking about media organizations and fake news, we're worried that they're going to try to put out one official line, one, one way you're supposed to talk about things, and anyone who deviates from that official line would, could be accused of spreading disinformation or fake news. That's the danger, because and if that were not their, their goal, then they should be differentiating between legitimate news organizations that have ethics and correct their mistakes versus ordinary citizens who put out deliberate disinformation online. And I say deliberate disinformation because you don't want to punish people just for putting out a story or putting out something on Twitter that turns out to be a mistake. Well, exactly. And um, journalism has always been, or newspapers, by definition, the first draft of history. So you, you get it out as quickly as you can with the best fact-checking available. But has there been an egregious example of the media... Uh, publishing fake news that that has got them all, um, you know, focused on this locally. I, I, I have, I, I'm sorry, who, who was that directed to? 
uh, either of you, Mark, has there been, or either of you, in your recent knowledge, an egregious case of media, as in bona fide legitimate journalists publishing fake news deliberately? I can mention Go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, okay. No, I, yeah. So, so I can think of one, I can think of one yeah. instance that the police have mentioned. It was when they had sort of an open house day for little children, and they were letting the little children run around and play with these kind of uh, toy guns, toy weapons. And one one news one news outlet took the, a photograph of that day and juxtaposed it against the photograph of of an incident that uh, I believe it was Prince Edward Station, where police went in and were attacking some. Uh, some people they claim were protesters who were fleeing, and the, the the media organization ran those two pictures next to each other, and the the police got, were very upset about that and called that fake news. When in fact it wasn't fake news; they just took two photographs, two real photographs, and put them next to each other. The 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 purpose being what? Well, the purpose being the purpose of that was trying to show that it was sort of like the. Uh, uh, the, the images of the children firing the weapons looked like the images of the police firing real uh, real tear gas in this one instance. It, you could say it was tacky. Yeah. You could say it was tactless. You could say it was trying to uh, stir up uh, distrust against the police, but you can't call it fake news when they were two photographs. Mm. Um, perhaps uh, manip manipulation of uh, images, uh, deliberate juxtaposition to create an impression. Um, yeah. Um. Let's bring in um, Dr. Bess Wang from uh, Hong Kong Baptist University. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Do you think the um, yeah, do, yeah. Um, do you think the media is good enough at self-regulation and and like for instance uh, publishing uh, corrections, as uh, Keith Richberg was just saying? Um, well, this uh, well, I am working now for the fact check service at the BU and. Yeah. Um, According to our observation, that uh, we did some content analysis, and uh, uh, we found that uh, very rare the so-called uh, misinformation or fake news is actually from the uh, mainstream media uh, journalism. But uh, as Anna said, that is widely available or uh, uh, detected from the social media by individuals who have their own opinion and their own agenda. So I don't think it is, um, yes, of course, self-regulatory is important. It's not nothing new for journalism. They are doing fact-checking every day uh, in their routine practice. And uh, for the social media users, uh, individuals online, uh, even we decide what is true or false is uh, case by case. This is very difficult to draw a uh, general and uh, uh, or coverage line between what is uh, to decide what is true or false. Because uh, there's a wide spectrum between the empirical observable facts and uh, subjective opinion. Uh, there are still a lot of things uh, sitting in between, like uh, inference, forecast, analysis, and uh, some quotes, right, from certain sources. And uh, people make mistakes. Every people, everybody, even uh, even fact checkers. Uh, so we, uh, it's so-called self-regulatory um, at the organizational level. 
I don't think it's quite feasible or effective, if not totally impossible. So probably the focus is still on the end users, education and the kind of uh, value uh, or a society consensus against those kind of post-truth politics. That's a strategic use of the relativism. These are the uh, direction of our efforts, I think. But how do you deal with this? This is these are new conundrum, conundra, I suppose. Um, things like the QAnon and the conspiracy theorists that seem to develop traction all of their own, and seem to have an energy. Keith, how do yes. you deal with this? Because none of this is obviously factual, and yet they have a life force. These stories. That, that, that is true, you know. And again, I mean, the, the people are grappling with this kind of disinformation. Uh, all over the world. I mean, look at the United States right now, where people are grappling with the idea that, you know, that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. Uh, you know, we see people, you know, spreading around theories about the, uh, the the virus not being real, or that the vaccines are going to implant things into you so Bill Gates can follow you. I mean, I, you know, you know, we, we mentioned news organizations and their fact-checking units, which are quite good, but you know, they don't have the capacity, and I don't really think it's their job to go around fact-checking everything that, you know, this torrent of disinformation that's floating around on the Internet. Um, you know, that, that, that would be a full-time job for, you know, a lot of people. You know, at some point, ultimately, I think the answer to this is news literacy. You know, people have to be taught to believe, you know, you know, you know what's real and what are legitimate news sources and be taught how to filter out some of the nonsense floating around. So it all goes back to news literacy and again you know you mentioned the old newspaper vendors you know you know i used to uh, go with my mom to the grocery store and we'd see these newspapers there that said you know elvis is alive or martians have landed on, on earth you knew instantly that these were just the kind of like these funny fake tabloids people don't have that same kind of filter when it comes to things that are floating around on the internet and that's why i think it's really it starts in schools where we have to start teaching news literacy we have to start teaching people how to differentiate between nonsense and real news that's floating around. Mm. Yeah, is there any such program in schools at the moment that you know of? Because, I, I mean, you're, it, it is a very serious issue, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure we all know uh, people who are normally perfectly sensible, but, uh, you know, they'll read something on the Internet and just believe it because they want to. Absolutely. You know, we're teaching this right now, um, you know, in all of our classes, really, at the, at the University of Hong Kong, HKU Journalism. You know, we, we've embedded, you know, news literacy into almost every class. We also have uh, uh, student-led fact-checking teams. Uh, we have one, you know, we talked about news organizations doing it. We're also doing it at journalism schools. But I think we have to go even younger. We have to yeah. start putting it into high schools and elementary schools because kids are on their devices really early on. <laughs> Yeah. Finland, for example, is one of the very few places with a dedicated department known as the National Audiovisual Institute overseeing media education. Uh, the edu education starts in, in public schools from pre-primary level and is defined as a cross curricular theme in the upper secondary curriculum. Uh, so uh, in Finland, for example, they're, they're looking at it purely in, as an educational uh, aspect. So how to discern fact from fiction? 
Is that what they're teaching, or are they teaching kids to well, verify what, sources? What they say is it's lessons in fact-checking and critical thinking. That's basically what curriculum is about. Right, right. So coming back to the the, the Donald Trump issue again about Twitter and all these platforms, to what extent, um, Keith, do you think that these should be uh, regulated from a government standpoint or should there be some other agency responsible for this? That's a great question, and you know I don't have the the, the answer to that totally. You know because I'm I'm against government regulation in a, in the broadest sense of these platforms because they are uh, they were designed to be and they are supposed to be sort of platforms for free speech for people to you know to, to debate things. Uh, now you're supposed to be entitled to give your opinion. You're not supposed to be entitled to your own set of facts. I think you know they're they're trying to get the balance right. They're trying to basically allow all kinds of speech on there until it gets into something either very egregious or something that can tip into something into uh, dangerous action. Uh, for example, denying the election in the U.S. was legitimate. It's something that they've now started to censor, although you can debate whether or not there was uh, fraud in some states or some cities. Likewise, with the coronavirus, uh, I think they're trying to take down deliberate disinformation that says the virus is a hoax or the vaccines don't work while at the same time allowing some debate over the efficacy of vaccines or whether it's better to wait to get your booster shot now or later, et cetera. So it's a really tricky task. But one thing I do know is that when you start letting government get in and do the job of regulating, they're going to overstep their hand and they're going to want to start taking down information that may not be false but something that they just don't like or that goes against the official propaganda. Uh, okay, Bess Wang, where do you stand on that? Yes, um, well, yes, as, uh, I, I agree uh, that uh, the government is not the most efficient and the proper role to do this. Uh, as to Anna just mentioned, the conspiracy theory, this kind of thing is basically due to people's lack of trust on the authorities and institutions. So it's basically hopeless that uh, if we to any arbitrator to say that is true or false, but uh, uh, education, media literacy, whether at the end users let people to reason uh, by themselves to to know that the criteria to establish a factual evidence, that is, a, I would say, that is a solution ultimately. But how do you feel about you know things that even to a rational person surely seem ridiculous, like all these theories about? Bill Clinton eating babies for breakfast. I mean, this stuff is crazy, and yet it has immense traction in the States, mostly. But how does that happen? Um, I would say that all people make mistakes, that uh, people can never be certain about anything, right? So we, uh, the, that philosophically, certainty is impossible, but uh, at a uh, uh, for our practical use in a pra pragmatic uh, uh, purpose that uh, to make an informed decision that uh, deciding facts and uh, still relevant and uh, if people establish this consensus um, to see that the truth is still uh, virtue and uh, relevant uh, that's uh, that could solve a, a part of the problem and then we once we have direction then we can 
yes, just uh, enhance uh, education from an earlier stage. Um, John Lee, the Chief Secretary, in an interview uh, uh, the other week, uh, he was talking about uh, media self-regulation as opposed to uh, new rules being uh, imposed uh, upon the media. Um, do you think there is scope for the media to set up some sort of mechanism to, to uh, strengthen self-regulation perhaps, um, just to show that it can do it itself and, and therefore uh, be able to continue to survive in perhaps a more favourable environment than if it uh, did have rules imposed upon it? Um, Best way? Yeah. Asking me? Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, because I know, I know I, you have to go at nine o'clock, don't you? So. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I do think media organisations are red already doing this. So uh, news, they, uh, for news organizations, uh, uh, a basic or uh, a quick fact-checking is already conducted uh, since, uh, since the beginning, okay, probably. And now there are emerging a lot of fact-checking institutions, and they are also doing this. So this kind of social discussion, like what we are doing now, and also the fact-checking institutions' appearance, is also exerts a lot of... Um, Lift some pressure, some positive pressure over uh, uh, over those generators of information, and even for the public that uh, who read and uh, produce um, uh, some message online, that uh, people are, we are actually valuing this, and we we can see that there's a um, there's a norm in it. Okay. So I think uh, uh, organizational. Speaking, they are already doing this. Okay, that's great. Um, okay, that's great. Sorry, sorry to have to cut you off because we've got a break for the news at nine o'clock. We'll be back at three minutes past. But thanks very much for joining us, so Dr. Bess Wang, there, senior lecturer at the School of Communication and Film at Hong Kong Baptist University. Uh, the weather is currently twenty-one degrees. Humidity is at sixty-six percent. First, and that's what we should be doing. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat with uh, Anna Fenton and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning, uh, we're talking about uh, fake news and media regulation. And uh, with us uh, on the line still, we have uh, Keith Richberg, who's president of the Foreign Correspondence Club and uh, director and professor of practice at the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at the University of Hong Kong. And also Mark Pinkston, uh, former government chief information officer. Uh, just a few emails for, from listeners here. Um, so Alan writes, uh, officials supervising and managing media and a campaign against fake news is the end of any semblance of uh, press freedom in Hong Kong. Authoritarian governments use the term fake news to attack and even criminalise any reporting unfavourable to them. If officials aren't managing the media, who can dare to report anything that embarrasses them? Um, David says, uh, I want to know how you're going to get rid of all these uh, algorithms that are sending me all these uh, scams and fake news. And we also have the situation of true news being uh, deleted from Facebook and YouTube. Uh, Paul says, uh, Backchat, if you simply take a look at reality today, it's no wonder that uh, fake news is a thing. Anna Fenton quite rightly asked, in a Pontius Pilate fashion, what is the basis of truth? 
I'd like to be. Uh, I'd like to table the fact that uh, Caitlyn Jenner is a beautiful woman, and anyone who disagrees, or worse, still believes that she is a man with serious plastic surgery, is a tin hat wearing lunatic who should be silenced. Uh, that from Paul. Um, okay. Um, hmm. Uh, interesting. One comment um, last week. Um, from Carrie Lam, the chief executive, uh, uh, who did uh, uh, point out and remind uh, her listeners at an online conference that the, the SAR government, uh, under the uh, security law, which came into effect last year, the SAR government is supposed to uh, step up promotion, supervision and management of the media and internet uh, as uh, they could affect uh, national security. Um, uh, Keith Richburg, um, do you have any idea, any thoughts about what direction that may take and what we may, you know, expect in the coming months? I mean, in terms of a fake news law yeah. or legislation, well, that's what we're well, worried well, about. Well, clo clo closer supervision and management of the media and the internet. What, could, yep, yep. what, what made that involve, do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's the problem. That's what we don't know. And again, I mean, I think they're going to use this, uh, this uh, campaign against online disinformation uh, as some tool to, to try to sort of more tighten regulation of, of the Internet. They may aim it at Internet. We don't really know. I mean, we're speculating at this point. Um, it could be, you know, trying to get Internet companies to take things uh, down um, that they deem kind of unfit. Uh, it could be trying to uh, prosecute uh, people for spreading what they consider disinformation, what we really, really don't know. And what's a bit kind of concerning is that uh, because we were talking about all of these news agencies, media outlets, legitimate media outlets that do this kind of fact-checking, and because we, you know, we have a lot of expertise at HKU Journalism, mm -hmm. at Baptist School of Communication and Journalism, at Chinese U, but as far as I know, the government hasn't gone around and talked to any of us <laughs> about, mm -hmm. you know, how this thing should be shaped or what, you know, the do's and don'ts, uh, what the experiences are in other countries. We've got people who have expertise in these areas. Um, but again, you know, you know, they seem to be trying to do this in a vacuum or, or without actually consulting the people who are, number one, most going, directly going to be affected by these sorts of regulations, and number two, who have some expertise, who are, uh, you know, who are willing to help, who are willing to say, here's what the experience has been in other countries like Singapore, like Malaysia, like Russia. Here are some pitfalls that they want to avoid. So we really just have to wait and see what it is they're talking about and when we might actually see something. You mentioned Singapore. I mean, uh, it passed a fake news law in 2019. Um, what do you think has been the effect of that? Well, again, it's, it, it's, it's being used, as far as we know, to try to just tackle uh, people who may put out information that's anti-government or considered anti-government uh, if it's unverified or, uh, you, know, you know, even even if it's satirical in some way. So that, and that's another thing to keep in mind. Fake news in some authoritarian countries has often been satire. Mm -hmm. often been, you know, they're all, there's all kinds of fake news going around. It could be advertorials, it could be satire, um, you know, all of these things could be fake news. It could be deliberately provocative uh, to start a conversation about something. So when you talk about fake news, the first thing you need to do is look at the motivation for the person putting it out. What was their reason to put it out? Was it to amuse people? Was it to deliberately misinform people? Was there a financial motive? Don't forget, a lot of this fake news is actually being mass-produced by trolls sitting in factories, you know, who are getting paid to, you know, spread this disinformation out there. And then the other thing that they have, that everyone has to be concerned about, is a lot of the fake news is coming from some of our neighbors from up north. Uh, 
you know, just on the coronavirus, for example, when word was floating around, you know, in the beginning of the virus about the origins and whether this would have come from some possible lab in Wuhan, immediately trolls started flooding the Internet with fake news that it really came out of a, a laboratory, an American military laboratory at Fort Belvoir. In, 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 the United, in Maryland and the United States, and that U.S. military soldiers had really taken the virus around the world. Now, this was completely concocted fake news, but it was being deliberately put out there by the 50-cent party to try to uh, spread kind of confusion among people. Now, would any regulation in Hong Kong also go after the ones who were spreading that kind of fake news? I mean, that, that's, these are the sorts of really difficult questions you get into. Yeah. So it's really the internet is 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 the problem, isn't it? it? It by its very nature, we don't have any control over it. Absolutely, you know, the internet has created this kind of monster we can't control. You know, don't forget, you know, it was originally supposed to be this kind of democratizing institution that you know took away power from the traditional media gatekeepers and allowed ordinary citizens to swap the information that uh, you know that that was being withheld from them or that weren't was not being adequately reported, but it's been kind of taken over by those with uh, nefarious motives now. And I think people are starting to have a real hard look at whether we have created something now that we can't control when it allows anybody sitting in their basement to suddenly reach millions and millions of people, you know, with no kind of regulation and no kind of gatekeeping function. And I think, um, I don't want to monopolize here, but just one other thing here. We're living in an age when all institutions are, are, are distrusted by the public. Government's distrusted, the police are distrusted, uh, uh, the media is distrusted, the corporations are distrusted. So we live in this kind of age of distrust. And I think that's also kind of fueling this. Nobody believes anything that uh, comes from an official established source anymore. Is it because it's trendy to be contrarian no matter what? Oh, you know, you know, you know my, my friend Kerry and George at, at Baptist University has looked at this, so I think you need to have him on once. But look, you know, people look around. You go back to 2008. We had this massive financial crisis uh, that kind of wiped out uh, uh, living standards and wiped out wealth for many people around the globe. And people look at that and they see what happened after it. No one at the top was punished, really. The banks were actually bailed out. Uh, governments bailed out banks, but often didn't help ordinary people. And so, and, and this has kind of continued in this kind of feeling that the elite are in it together against the ordinary people has what is what is what has led to this kind of rise of populism. It, it led to the rise of a Donald Trump. And it has also led to this kind of uh, this kind of distrust of all official institutions, and the media is swept up in that. It's kind of feeling that the traditional mainstream media has failed. We don't talk about the problems of real people. It's too many of elites talking to other elites and printing stories that don't really affect real people. So it's a huge global problem I think we're into right now. So, Mark, are you still there? Yes, yes, I am. I mean, you, you've been in the game a long time, and you've been in the government information service back in the day, uh, in the days when the bank owned the South China Morning Post and the government ran RTHK. How has this, this is not a new problem, is it? How have we kept the facts clean and the spin minimal over the years? Well, uh, again, it's uh, professionalism. But in those days, you know, we didn't have the Internet, you know, we as good old-fashioned typewriters were used. Um, the... Oh, oh. Uh, we lost someone. Is that Mark huh? gone, or is that Keith gone? 
I'm still here. Keith. Okay, okay Keith. Uh, I mean, going back, you know, it, it's interesting. We talk about objective press in Hong Kong, but actually the truth is RTHK was part of GIS. It was government information services run for years. And also the Hong Kong Bank owned the South China Morning Post for years. And yet there was no howls of bias or spin, were there? So, no, because, because the, owners, the owners of those papers did what owners were supposed to do, which is sign the checks and leave the journalist alone. <laughs> and, you know, you know, the BBC is, you know, government publicly funded, you know, uh, VOA in the U.S. is publicly funded, but the owners are supposed to leave them alone because their impartiality in covering the news is part of their integrity. And once you start thinking, well, I own this, I own this outfit, so I'm going to turn it into a tool of my own interest, then the media loses credibility. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to sound uh, anti-Donald uh, Trump. Um, that, uh, that, that was obviously a, a, a very controversial uh, era in uh, U.S. politics. But, 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 he, but he, he would often describe um, uh, news stories, uh, news that he didn't like, as fake news. I mean, is that part of the problem that we're facing now? If, uh, if, if, if something is contrary to somebody's point of view, it becomes... Uh, it's described as fake rather than, uh, you know, just another point of view. Uh, absolutely. You know, that was one of the, the you know, I hate to be, I use the word brilliance in Donald Trump in the same sentence, but that was part of his brilliance was uh, being able to spread this idea that anything that he didn't approve of uh, or that, did, that deviated from his official line was fake news, and it was immediately picked up by every autocrat uh, and dictator around mm. the world. Um, but he also seeded it so brilliantly with his phrase that everybody could jump onto of draining the swamp. Yes, and, that, and, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, it, it was a really fascinating interview he gave very early on with, I believe it was Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, where he said basically that he, he actually deliberately just created that phrase, fake news, just so he could discredit the media when they wrote nasty stories about him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay uh, we've got Mark Pinkston back. Uh, hello, Mark. What I'm saying, uh, very quickly, not discrediting professional journalism, but today we have a, a new thing called uh, citizen journalism. Mm. And this is where people just write anything they have in their mind just to see their name in print on, on the watch name. But I'd like to make a point about um, uh, overseas uh, handling of this. Uh, places like France and Singapore have taken the lead in introducing a dedicated disinformation law. That's a legal thing, which Hong Kong is sort of considering at the moment, uh, which I don't think it will get through anyway because of um, the freedoms of speech. But the UK has established an in-house unit to improve the response to disinformation. And uh, Finland and Germany, for example, have enlisted private sector support in launching uh, fact-finding initiatives. And the, uh, the European Union has counted on media self-regulation to balance between press freedom and oversight on disinformation. And I think that's the way which Hong Kong should be going. Mm -hmm. OK. 
Okay. Okay, well, we'll see. Um, thanks very much uh, for speaking to us uh, on the programme uh, this morning. That was uh, Mark Pinkston, uh, a former government chief information officer. And thanks very much to Keith Richberg, president of the Foreign Correspondents Club and director and professor of practice at the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks very much to you both. Um, before nine o'clock, we heard from Dr Bess Wang, who's a senior lecturer at the School of Communication and Film at Hong Kong Baptist University. And uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're going to be uh, turning our attention to our second uh, topic, and that is um, um, the Ombudsman suggesting that the Transport Department uh, should uh, specify the examination uh, items for issuing senior drivers' physical fitness uh, certification. Um, and that would be in order to uh, mitigate... Uh, uh, the risk of traffic accidents, because of course uh, a lot of uh, a lot of drivers, um, minibus drivers, and so on, and uh, uh, are over the age of seventy, and people over seventy have to produce a, a medical examination certificate. But there's a, a question mark over uh, what is actually stated uh, on the certificate. Um, we're now joined uh, on the line by James Ockenden, who's uh, founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of the radio show Wham Bam Tram. Good morning to you. I'm also a citizen journalist, so uh -huh. uh, I take some offence at the, uh, oh. the comments just made earlier, by the way. Oh, okay. Okay. oh please well, don't, please don't take offence. As long as you're responsible, yeah. you know, if the cap fits, wear it. <laughs> uh, we were talking a, a lot of uh, generalisations, of course, and there are always exceptions. Sure, you're a very responsible citizen uh, journalist, uh, James, so. and, uh, yeah. and we appreciate your contributions uh, to this programme. Back chat, uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. So um, wh what do you think about this business of the elderly drivers and the type of proof that they have to uh, submit to the transport department? Yeah, I mean, it just feels like another shot in the dark from the government at trying to improve road safety without really any basis in fact. Uh, we don't really see elderly drivers as especially more responsible for crashes. Uh, if you look at the data on, you know, overall, we see that people over 60 account for about 19% um, of all driving licences, but only 18.6% of all crashes. So they're, you know, just below their sort of fair share of crashes. And if you look at the bus crash rate, then you see the biggest for KMB, the biggest crash rate is in the 26 to 30 age group. Um, so, of drivers. Of drivers, sorry, yes, yeah. So, you know, I don't think it's fair to necessarily paint the elderly as responsible for crashes. And at the same time, you know, what is it about the elderly... Sorry, that's my baby you in the studio. I was going to say, you have a family member I have a in the studio. Yes, <laughs> who's very excited. But I don't think it's fair to paint them necessarily. So what is it about the elderly? If you look at the cause of crashes in Hong Kong, it's overwhelmingly speed and use of mobile phone or driving too close to the vehicle in front. There's nothing about being old that makes you more likely to do those things. Is it, James, because the statistics show the numbers of drivers over 70 have increased and have doubled, in fact, since 2016? We now have 73,000 driving over the age of 70. Uh, 73,000 drivers over the age of 70. Yeah, now. Yeah, well, that, is that actually drivers or, or licences? I'm not quite sure. But, uh, yeah, so we do have, we do have an, an ageing population and we do have yeah. ageing drivers. But what I'm saying is, you know, whether the actual the fact that they are older is contributing to accidents or is it just, you know, poor driving? And I think what we've got here is a chance to assess how do we vet drivers, how do we test drivers? And we could do so much better than simply getting a medical certificate for a certain age group. 
uh, we could actually be doing almost, you know, real-time assessment of drivers now with the technology that exists in modern cars. So this is a chance for transport department perhaps to seize you know, a bigger picture than just, OK, we need to get medical certificates for 70-year-olds. Could, could we address the taxi drivers with now, I had one this morning, six mobile phones lined up in front of him as we drive along? <laughs> Uh, yes. I mean, taxi drivers, there's, you know, how many taxi drivers are over 60? There's something like uh, 50% of taxi licence holders are over 60. And so there's definitely an issue there. But that's not all of, you know, not every taxi driver with a licence is active. So we don't know how many active taxi drivers are over 60. Uh, certainly, they always, you know, when I get a taxi, they seem older than, uh, you know, they seem a bit older than I would have hoped for you know, this taxi fleet where we want to encourage young people into the industry. But how are we going to encourage young people into such an industry? We need you know, a better taxi system. We need better minibus system. Well, interestingly, the Uber drivers aren't old, are they? They tend to be younger guys. Yeah, they tend to be younger. They tend to you know, be sort of self-employed. They, they have more ownership, I guess, of their business because they will take out a lease on their car and then they will run the whole thing themselves. Whereas for a taxi driver, you're basically an employee. You're a driver paid a very low wage. So that's not going to attract young people in. In terms of the medical checks, uh, so it seems that uh, the, uh, let's see, the transport department uh, recommends checks on a driver's eyesight, hearing, their mental state, uh, balance and coordination. But um, uh, as I understand it, the observation of the ombudsman is that uh, none of these actually appear on the medical certificate. So uh, whether or not those checks uh, actually take place... Uh, might be open to question. Yeah, there could be. I mean, there's an element in Hong Kong of sort of doctor shopping. If you need a certificate for anything, you can just go to pretty much a doctor anywhere and, and get a certificate. So mm. I think there's an element of that. But again, are those the things which are causing crashes? Is it, you know, if arthritis and poor vision are causing crashes um, from drivers, then we could address that. But it's not. It's speed. It's, mm. it's inattentiveness. It's mobile phones. Uh, as you mentioned, the mobile phones are the taxi drivers. But, you know, you see so many car drivers when I'm cycling along. Almost every car driver on Queen's Road Central is looking at their phone, sometimes with two hands, you know, texting. So these are the things we need to really take a step back on road safety and look at the system as a whole. Um, I was just talking with Julian Kwong, who's a UN road safety advisor. I mean, we, we interviewed him on Wam Bam Tram. And he's got this idea of fail safe. And he says, you know, no one should die in Hong Kong because of a mistake. And that's what happens. People make mistakes. Like the bus driver recently, you know, didn't know which lane he was in and hit the concrete divider and a man died. Now, nobody should be losing their life over a simple mistake. So... Julian Kwong's idea is simply, you know, reduce the speed, in which case, if you're travelling at 30 kilometres an hour, 20 kilometres an hour, you can pretty much drive, you know, with your eyes closed, less, no one would get killed. So this is, we need to be looking at that, rather than saying, OK, 70-year-old needs to have his eyes tested. But how are you going to deal with that? Because where I live, when we try and reduce the speed limit in the village from 50 clicks to 30, yeah. it, the bus driver, the bus company says OK, the village head says OK, the school says OK, yeah. the taxi drivers block it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a political issue, isn't it? I mean, that's what we need to get past. We need a government to be strong enough to say there's lives at stake here. We're not going to let these special interests 
you know, kill people, essentially. Mm-hmm. And what, it also needs a change in road design. You can't just stick up a sign that says 30 and expect people to, to stick to it. You need to change the roads. You need to narrow them. They need to be, instead of these long, straight tunnels with railings all the way down, you need to actually make them, you know, with chicanes and, and, and islands so that people can't speed down there, even if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mentioning the speed, though, um, so do, do you think at least uh, speed limits should be reduced on certain roads? Oh, absolutely, across the city. You know, in urban areas, the government's always talking about, you know, how dangerous it is to cycle in urban areas. In urban areas, the speed limit should be reduced to 30 kph. This is what we're seeing across cities all over the world, and it is dramatically reducing road deaths. Because if you get hit by someone at 50 kph, you may, you probably will die. If you get hit at 30 kilometres an hour, you've got a very good chance of walking away at 20 kilometers an hour you know you you might just get up and walk away so this needs to be done uh really this is the biggest problem with road safety it's not it's not drivers who are 75 and and have you know slightly dim eyes but it plays to that too doesn't it james because the the main tests i think they should be doing as well as eyesight are cognitive functioning and response times reaction times and that of course if you're going slower even if you're older you have more time to assimilate what's going on and react yes absolutely so so your mental speed isn't so much of an issue so that's what julian kwong is talking about the fail safe so if you have got someone and it might not necessarily be old but someone who's having a, a bad moment then that's great they 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 can they, they if they fail to react it's not going to be deadly so that's what we need to bake into the system rather than this you know this mindless testing of, of elderly Okay, well, we've got an, an email here from Mark. It says, uh, time for all uh, PSV and goods vehicles to have an age limit of 65. Say no more. This comment by James about uh, age not correlating to accidents holds no water. Statistics can always be ni- manipulated to well, no, support your theory. Yeah. Mm. We've seen in the in the UK a big study, you know, the BBC reported that, in fact, elderly were more likely to die in crashes. Right, um, right. But, but that's because they're more vulnerable. You know, if a 90-year-old falls down in the street, they're more likely to die. But they're not more likely to cause crashes. That was found in the UK. We don't really have good data on this in, the, in Hong Kong. That's another problem, of course. We don't, we're shooting in the dark. As I said, we don't really know what is the situation, who is causing the accidents. But we do know that speed and that looking at mobile phones are the major factors, according to the police. Mm. Yeah, uh, Mark also says uh, encouraging younger people to join the industry can be achieved by by increasing remuneration, but then uh, that would mean more expensive public transport, and I don't think that would be accepted by the public. It's a vicious circle. I don't think that would re- re- uh, increase public transport at all. There, there is a maximum age of around 60 on the bus, any, on, the, on the franchise buses anyway. I think it might put up the commercial vehicle rates, but then logistics is way too cheap in this city anyway. You can get delivery in 10 minutes. It's much too cheap. It's, you know, the environmental cost, the road safety cost are not baked into logistics. So, yes, if commercial vehicle rates go up, that's probably a good thing. You mentioned people using mobile phones and texting and what have you. That's against the law, of course. Uh, yeah. So, what, so, so, so what's the problem there? Lack of enforcement? I guess it's very hard to enforce. And I know the police have tried and they had these vans that were going through the tunnels uh, videoing out of the window to try and catch drivers there. So it is, you can't do it with a, a fixed camera by the street. So there's, there's a challenge there, certainly, uh, for enforcement. But I'm sure, you know, we've got smart people here. I'm sure we can figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just uh, just generally speaking, um, what, what what else do you think needs to be done then to to reduce the accident rate? 
Well, I think, I mean, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to fire everybody involved with the Road Safety Council because they're doing nothing at all. They just have these carnivals every year where they dress up elderly in high-vis vests and they say, OK, that's it. We've told the elderly not to get killed on the road. We need a real interdepartmental task force on road safety where everyone can really work together and look at the, look at the big picture. Like the UN now recommends an integrated approach. We've got the, the Decade of Action on Road Safety from the UN announced a couple of weeks ago. And that that has an integrated approach at its heart. You can't just say, we'll look at one thing. You need, you need to look at the whole system. And again, I think people like Julian Kwong are so spot on with the fail-safe approach. We need to slow everything down and we need to not make it fatal to make a mistake. OK. Well, that's great. Well, uh, James Ockenden, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, and thanks to your young family member as yeah. well. Uh, James Ockenden Hi. there, the uh, founder and editor of Transit Gem and producer of the radio show uh, Wham Bam Tram. Uh, good. Um, and just before we go, uh, just before we end uh, this morning's programme, a couple of more emails on our main topic from earlier, which was about uh, fake news and media regulation. Um, so James writes, uh, uh, perhaps fake news is based on fake information provided by government officials, public figures, or by the corporate communication offices of major companies. Fake news was not created by professional journalists. Um, and Peter writes, uh, uh, under the subject line, uh, journalism versus propaganda, in recent years, we've seen journalists transform into activists, uh, disseminating misinformation and purposefully creating propaganda. For example, 99% of Western media coverage of China is negative. Why is this the case? It is clear that uh, some journalists are abusing their position to further their own political goals because they are more concerned with shaping public opinion than with facts. The U.S. State, uh, sorry, the U.S. Senate recently passed uh, the strategic Competition Act of 2021, a massive anti-China bill. The bill commits hundreds of millions of dollars to anti-China media initiatives, including 300 million to spread negative news about the Belt and Road Initiative, run anti-China influence programs, train journalists to counter Beijing, and expand Radio Free Asia's Chinese language operation. Why can't Backchat have an honest show about how the press and media in the West actually work, rather than constantly repeating the illusion that the Western press is independent, free and fact-based, when in reality it has become just another political tool, particularly for foreign policy and party politics? Well... Anna, as a journalist, how would you like to respond <coughs> to that? Yes, I would. Let's not lose sight of the facts, which is news is a business, always will be and always has been. Within that, there is a fine line between, yeah, corporate, cor um, corporate PRs pumping out spin, and, and that's been the job of intelligent journalists to remain impartial. It's an imperfect science, but we do our best. Newspapers and news is the first draft of history. It's not a science, but, you know... We have to have a, a, an inner moral compass on this as journalists and not allow our politics to get in the way, I believe. Mm -hmm. OK, well, uh, thank you very much uh, for being the co-host this morning. Um, thanks very much uh, to our listeners and to everybody who wrote in. 
Um, quick look at the weather before we go to the new summary and morning brew. So it's going to be fine today uh, with a top temperature of around 26 degrees, moderate north to northeasterly winds, fresh offshore at night. Uh, the outlook fine and dry in the next few days, becoming cool tomorrow, remaining cool in the morning in the middle and latter part of this week. Currently it's 21 degrees, humidity 64%. The 2021 Legislative Council general election is on December 19th. Electors should wear a mask, have their temperature checked and sanitize their hands. A special queue will be set up for persons aged 70 or above or with disabilities and pregnant women. Electors must show their ID cards. Staff will use the electronic poll register to issue ballots. The geographical and functional constituency ballots should be unfolded with the marked side face down and go into the correct boxes. The new summary with Todd Harding. The police have arrested a 33-year-old man and charged him with assault after he allegedly pushed a woman onto the light rail track in Tunmun. The president of South Africa has criticised nations that have imposed travel bans since the discovery of the new Omicron variant of the coronavirus in his country last week. And Britain, which chairs the Group of Seven, says it will convene a meeting of health ministers from the world's leading economies later today to discuss the new coronavirus variant. I'll have more on these stories at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Well, not too bad at all. Good morning. You'll be off Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil? Good morning. He's got the top of Jerry's type vibe. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Monday here on The Morning Brew. We're going to begin as usual with Robbie McRobbie's medium-level rugby report. It's tough in the middle, I tell you. 10.40, Tracy Kwan, author, New York correspondent and massive Stephen Sondheim fan, so that's what we're going to be talking about. 11.40, we're going to welcome classical guitar superstar Shufei Yang back to The Brew. She's in Hong Kong again for a recital tomorrow night of Spanish, Chinese and Latin music. This is really, really rather good. And to wrap up today, we're going to return to Titan Country Park to catch up with adventurer Paul Neal and the team from Project Adventure. As their hunt for the remains of a downed Second World War American plane draws to a close, we're going to see what they've uncovered since we spoke last week. 